Hey, what's up? This is Seth Mosley, and you're listening to the Full Circle Music Show. Thanks for joining us again today. We've got a great guest with us today, Brad O'Donnell, head of A&R over at Capital CMG Music. This guy has had a long, illustrious career, signed many artists, made many big records. In fact, was just a part of one that won a Grammy last night, the new Toby Mac record, so congrats to you, Brad, on that. And he's going to tell us his story today about how he moved to Nashville, met his wife, got into music through the artist path and the evolution that that took to where he is today. He is definitely a leader in our industry, and I think you guys will learn a ton from him. Before we dive in, last week's trivia question, who was the top Grammy winner of all time? Well, you might have not known this, but Sir George Salty. He has an impressive 31 Grammys to his name in the classical music genre. So whoever got that question right is going to take home a copy of All You Need to Know About the Music Business. This week's trivia question, since we're in Grammy mode, who won the 2016 Album of the Year? Email your responses to trivia at fullcirclemusic.org and one of you guys will take home a copy of Hitman. And we just want to thank you so much. We're, we're getting more and more downloads each week. We've gotten a lot of feedback from you guys. We'd love your support if you'd head over to iTunes and leave us a good rating and review. Tell your friends, tell your family about it. And for those of you guys out there who are aspiring songwriters, we've got a free thing we've created for you called the Top 10 Steps to Successful Songwriting from a Grammy-winning writer. We'd love to send that to you. Just go to fullcirclemusic.org and click right there on the front page for that. And without further ado, let's dive into the show. Well, we got Brad O'Donnell in the house today. It's a big privilege. I've been a big fan of Brad's in the Christian music industry for a long time. He's been a big leader, having signed artists like Toby Mac, Chris Tomlin, Britt Nicole, Jeremy Camp, David Crowder Band, Matthew West, Hillsong United, Need to Breathe. The list just goes on Good and on. Grief. <laughs> that kind of reads like a who's who of, of an entire genre. So it really does. Uh, that's pretty impressive. I can tell his face is getting red, or it might just be the light. <laughs> so I'll let him say hello to you guys. Hello, everyone. Uh, Honor to be here. Back yeah. at you, Seth. I'm a huge fan. I'm glad we're finally starting to make some records together. Yeah. No, just to clarify, too, I've, I had the privilege of signing some of them and working with all of them. I wish I could okay, take credit okay. for signing all of them. Okay. We'll make sure your bio is adjusted <laughs> <laughs> accordingly. <laughs> Brad, in case you guys don't know, is an A&R and no listener left behind artists and repertoire the guy who signs artists helps pick the songs shepherd their careers creatively and really just promote the best atmosphere for inspiration right is that kind of the how do you define a&r in your in your position man that's pretty good i'm going to borrow that moving <laughs> forward i am um, see you know it's a really old term from what i understand it's from sometime in the 1930s, 40s. It stands for artists and repertoire. And what it meant then was you were in charge of the artists and you were in charge of the repertoire. So when Frank Sinatra made a record, which at that point in time happened in one day, yeah. you found the songs, you got the songs arranged, you got the band in the studio, you got Frank to the studio on time so that a record got made. So obviously the process is dramatically different now all these years <laughs> later, but ironically at its core, it's still about those two things. It's about artists you know signing and developing them and it's about repertoire which is the songs they write and the records they make so how involved are you in the song process are you literally when one of your artists that you work with sends you a song or a batch of songs for a record what's your process like one of the things i love about the job is that it's dramatically different for 
each artist, at least with me. I mean, other people may have more of a formula. What I love is every artist is dramatically different. So you might have one artist that doesn't write songs at all. What you do is you start the process with a song meeting where you talk about what kind of music they're into, what their vision is for their next album, what they're passionate about saying, and then you work with publishers and songwriters to find those songs. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you may have an artist that not only writes, they don't co-write. So from day one, all of the music is coming from them and they're sending you recordings from their iPhones, you know, song memos and ideas. And then within that, you've got different levels of openness, different levels of development. Some artists, which I respect, are protective. So they're bringing you in to the process a little later. Some artists, from the first time they come up with the first idea, they're texting it to you and saying, what do you think? So I think my experience, at least, is in order to do the job well, you have to kind of be prepared for, for whatever. And do you prefer one way over the other? I really don't. I mean, I may have ADD. I've self-diagnosed myself. So I like <laughs> that it's different every time. I think I would get bored if I made the same kind of record with the same kind of artists all the time. It's one of the things I really love about the place I work and the roster we have is how diverse it is. Being an A&R, we talked to a couple of A&R guys, or at least they've had it somewhere in their career, and you say that you kind of self-diagnosed ADD. It sounds like a very good job for someone who likes variety. Completely. And within that variety, what does a typical day look like for you? Again, man, I'm not trying to dodge the question, but that's the beauty is there really yeah. there isn't one. You know, it's I think early in your career, you come into a record company and you don't have a roster. Mm. So the majority of your time is spent learning the company, building relationships and looking for artists where I've now been doing this for, it's actually 16 years this month. Um, I started in January of 2000. So I have a full roster. So I spend a limited time of my day taking new artist meetings, looking, and I spend time on larger tasks at the label, you know, administrative stuff, and then taking care of the roster that I already have. Yeah. So it moves around at different points in your career. And then I think also, you know, it was interesting. Yesterday was a day, for example, I was out all day. I mean, I had a, a and this is, I know the joke, this is what people think record people, or A&R people do, they just hang out all day. But I actually <laughs> did yesterday. I started with the breakfast. I went to a coffee. I went to a lunch. I went to an afternoon meeting. But it was all with artists. And it was super productive. I just felt like it was, I got a ton done yesterday. That's great. So that's what I love about it. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. What does one of those meetings look like where you walk away feeling like you got something done at a coffee? What does that look like in intangibles, I guess? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a combination of two things. My philosophy is that my role is to help edit an artist to do what they do at the highest possible level. Hmm. So in other words, my starting point is not, hey, man, I, I thought of this great idea for you. My starting point is I want to understand what you want to do. What do you think we're doing this time? Or what are you trying to accomplish? And then once I know that, so that's half the meeting. is where, where are we going? What's the vision? Where's your compass point right now? And then the other half of it is like, all right, now that I know, tell me what, how you think we get there. And then that's when it becomes a collaboration. Because I might say, those are awesome ideas. Thank you. Now I know. And now I can go represent you inside the label and I can help you get it done. And then sometimes you say, all right, well, based on the fact that you said you want to get here, Maybe there's a better way to approach this. Maybe that's not the right producer. Maybe that's that's not what I took away from the song demos you sent me. You said you want to make this kind of record, but hmm. the song demos felt to me like maybe they want to go this direction. So And so then it becomes like a conversation about how do we get where you said you wanted to go. 
Talk about demos. I mean, that's kind of a loose term nowadays because you mentioned the writer sending you an iPhone work tape and then you mentioned somebody sending you a finished demo. Is it hard to hear through an iPhone work tape anymore? You know, if I'm being honest, sometimes. I know A&R people are supposed to say, no, I can hear anything. <laughs> but, you know, it, it can be when, like when you get a demo and it's a really rough recording and it's the artist says, hey, just so you know, um, I think I'm going to do this 10 clicks faster and it's going to sound like Coldplay. And and it's like, I, you know, I'm, I'll do my best to use my imagination and sometimes I can get it. Sometimes, if I'm being honest, I just have to say, okay, well, maybe we should develop the demo a little more so we can be sure that this song has the potential to become what you want it to be. It is funny because on the singer-songwriter side of things, it typically is just a, a piano and a vocal, an acoustic guitar and a vocal. And on the pop or hip-hop side, it can be... A mini record right I and mean, it mm. may be you know pretty close to what you're gonna hear on the radio six months later yeah well that's i mean nowadays so much of a song and songwriting i mean that's split into three parts there's music or track and there's melody and there's lyric and like you said with the singer songwriter part it's more maybe focused on the melody and lyric but modern pop music i mean half the thing is about the track and the vibe and the feeling i guess our genre might be a little different in that do you think no, I, th I think you're right. I mean, I think it's similar in that if it's pop or hip-hop, and, and really I would say any kind of radio-driven format, the sound of the production, you could argue is as important as the, the chords and melody and lyrics. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, especially when you've got to listen to whatever song you're talking about squeezed or sandwiched in between two other songs that very much define a genre. You know, if you're listening to the radio, you know, those songs come back to back, and so if they're not up to snuff or... What you're saying, I think, is the production level, if it's not there, then it's not going to perform as well as some of the other ones sitting there. That's exactly right. And that's what I always, you know, producers and songwriters, I think, will fairly ask, like, I think we wrote a really good song. How do you want to hear the demo? Hmm. And I'm always like, I want to hear it how you think it can be best represented. You know, so it's like if, I don't think that always means blowing it out like a record, but I do think, you know, sometimes giving at least a little bit of a sense of here's how exciting this could be if it was produced like a full record, can it helps your song. Sure, sure. Well, I think of Steve Jobs as a perfect parallel for that. Every presentation he did was as much about the presentation as it was about the product. Wow, yeah. And you were just excited to watch the presentation because there was surprise and it was a show, I feel like. And so to me, at least the way that our company, not to talk too much about how we do stuff, but I think it's how a lot of people are doing it nowadays. The demo really is that presentation. It's a great analogy. I think, anyways. <laughs> I agree. No, no, no. I'm, I'm with you. So, rewinding a little bit, how did you first get your job? You said you started in 2000 at Sparrow? It was actually in 2000 I started at Murr Records, okay. uh, which eventually turned into Word Records. And then I moved to Sparrow, which became EMI and then Capital CMG. Um, I moved there in the summer of 01. So, who gave you your first shot at it, at the whole A&R thing? I mean, the, the brief story is that I went to jazz school at the University of Miami in Florida. I did an undergrad and a master's there and was just, you know, fell in love with songwriting and record making towards the end of my time. Even though I love jazz music too, I, I think I had figured out that I was probably not a jazz virtuoso <laughs> and I was just really enjoying writing songs. And some of these songs got the attention of a small record company in Nashville. And so that allowed my wife and I to move. We had to deal with a small indie label. And I figured out very quickly in that space that I did not like traving. You, and, you and your wife as artists? Yes. And believe it or not, 
we signed as a duo and that was wow. i mean it, you know you're just you're learning as you're going so i'm figuring out i'm not a jazz virtuoso i very quickly figured out my wife was infinitely more attractive and interesting than i was i was a behind the scenes guy and then i also just figured out as much as i loved playing music on stage i mean part of being an artist is there's an enormous amount of non-music activity sure travel you know interviews you know bookstores signings and i, I just I didn't like it, so I wanted to be off the road and in the studio. So I started writing songs and developing artists, and I don't think I had any inkling that A and R was something that I could or should do. But I had a dear friend who kind of recognized it in me and said, "Hey, I think a lot of what you are doing is less production and more A and R. Like you seem to really love artists, love developing artists. Have you ever considered that?" And I said, absolutely not, not even once. I mean, it's literally <laughs> never, cry and he was an A&R guy, and I said, I don't even know, I think I honestly said, I, I don't know what it stands for, and I don't know what you do all day. I mean, I like getting lunch with you, I'm glad you pay, but I don't, I don't know what you do. You know, just the way circumstances worked out in the late part of 99, we were pregnant with our first kid without health insurance. Y2K was bearing down on Y2K you. was coming, we are in Stocking our up. hatch exactly I was buying lots of canned food um <laughs> but i uh, i had a couple different offers to do a and r and i kind of didn't have a choice i needed to explore it and i was curious when i would develop artists i would work on something and then i would think man this is great i mean people are gonna be beating my door down and it, i'd send it to my a and r friends it would be crickets wow. and then i would work on something else that i thought oh this is all right i'd have four or five people call me and say can i meet the artist are you going to showcase them and so I think that demonstrated to me that as great as my education was at the University of Miami on the foundations of what it means to make music, mm. there was a whole part of the music industry I had no understanding of. So I went into it thinking, all right, I'll do this for a year. I'll get some health insurance. We'll save a few bucks and I'll figure out what makes for a successful artist. And, and once I got in it, I found um, just that I loved it, that my friend was right. It was was a great kind of fit for what my experiences were and what I was passionate about wanting to do. So do you still produce, you don't do any of the production writing anymore. It's you're strictly A&R and that's it. That's right. Point. I did it for, I did it for like three or four years. And then eventually it felt like I had two, two jobs, you know, yeah. I'd write on the nights then I produced on the weekend and we started having kids and, and when I had nights and weekends, I thought, man, I want to hang out with them. I have a really a job that is demanding. Yeah. And so, and the other thing people ask a lot, they're just like, well, don't you miss it? And I, I really, I don't. I mean, I, I loved that period of my career, but I, I find it very fulfilling to sit with an artist, have a blank slate, hear what their vision is and help them accomplish it. And I don't know. I, I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because when I was a quote unquote artist, that's what I was doing with my wife. You know, it was her vision. It was making her records. And so, that's how I'm wired. That's what is interesting and exciting to me. You know, if you take an A&R department, if you kind of drew it up on a spreadsheet, it would look like it falls under the business category of a label, but it really is such a creative process that I wonder if that's maybe what it was as well, is that you were still able to work that creativity like you were when you were writing and producing, but it's now more of, it's focused on creating a career or a, you know, a body for a body of work for someone else. That's definitely right. And that's the, uh, ironically, that's what I found for most A&R people is that's either the thing that they love or it's the part that they don't love. Because uh. it does exist in this weird kind of, it's creative, but like you said, it's on the P&L, there's major business sure. responsibilities attached to it. And I think you either grow to love that tension over time, 
like I, I like standing in the gap between making the business guys happy and making great records and making artists happy sure. or that's the thing that drives you crazy you just go this is no fun i want right. out so yeah. when you were first hired as an a&r did you have any clue about the business side or did you just kind of have to figure it out as you went more the latter i mean i knew a little bit just like kind of from walking alongside my wife and the record she made i mean i think i knew a bit but i mean i knew I was wet behind the ears. I mean, I was as green <laughs> yeah. as you could get. And my, my one advantage was just, I think I knew it. Yeah. You know, I think I was, I was just smart enough to know what I didn't know yeah. and not be afraid to ask dumb questions. So who, I mean, how did you learn that over the years just by making mistakes and... Uh, you know, I'm, yes, for sure. I could definitely, some, I always joke, some write a book on what not to do in the music business because I don't <laughs> think anybody's written that and it's like, <laughs> I got a long list. But... I mean, a lot of it is just, man, I, I encourage like our interns that come in. I'm just like, anybody who's successful and experienced that will meet with you, meet with them. Because that's that's the one thing that maybe I got right was when I moved to town, I would take a lot of what I call the gender-free meetings. Sure. You know, you sit down with somebody and you'd say, hey, I want to ask you about your job. And typically the body language would be at first kind of scared, like, oh, what's this guy going to ask me for? Does he want me to listen to his demo? Does he want me to sign his wife does right. want to produce records and i think once they found out that i was just i was just curious like i just i wanted to learn whatever they wanted to teach me i found people in the music business to be incredibly generous just like once they felt like i didn't i wasn't trying to get something out of them they were like whoa what about this you want to come by the studio or you should come to the showcase next week and so i just i found people in the music business if approached the right way to be incredibly giving and generous of their experience and knowledge. And so that's what I always tell people, like, just do it. And I, I think I did a ton of that. I was really fortunate to have a couple great mentors who that was not just a one or two or five time thing. That was, you know, they were meeting with me regularly. People like, you know, my still boss, Peter York, who's our label president. People like John Mays, who's a great A&R guy here in town. People like Grant Cunningham, who's the guy that hired me from Word to come to Sparrow. So... I was really fortunate to have much smarter and more experienced people than me pouring into me and teaching me how to do it. Sure. That's awesome. I'm sure John Mays would love to hear that. <laughs> he was actually just a guest on the show. So <laughs> backing up to 2000, when you got into it, it was CDs at the time or cassettes kind of phasing mm -hmm. out. Yeah, definitely CDs. I, I don't think we had cassettes, but it might've been the tail end. Yeah. So CDs onto digital downloads and now streaming. Does it scare you at all where the industry's headed or where we are right now? It doesn't scare me. It's challenging. I don't know. I mean, I've always thought most of the trends, by no means like a Oracle who sees all this coming, but I'm a music lover and a consumer. So in other words, when I was buying CDs, I was frustrated like most listeners <laughs> that I couldn't hear it. I would literally go to the record store and think, this kind of sucks that I have to pay 15 bucks and I haven't heard it. So when yeah. the Apple Music Store came out, I'm like, this is great. And yes, that created challenges for our company and for the music industry, but I liked it. And then once the idea of streaming came along in any form, you know, video streaming, audio streaming, I thought, man, what a great idea. And I could have the, the history of recorded music in my pocket for <laughs> less than the cost of what I used to, because I used to spend a ton of money on music yeah. for less than the cost of one CD a month. So I'm not saying it's perfect. We've got a lot to figure out. I mean, the world is moving at a really rapid pace. I think if you're anywhere in the intellectual property business, you know, entertainment, or I think if I worked at a newspaper, I'd be going, what do we do? You yeah. know, this is a completely new world, but I also think it's more exciting than scary. So what is working right now on the label side? 
because you talk about the business and it, you know, it, it presents its own sets of challenges, but what, what are the things that are working? You mean from an artist or record perspective, or do you mean just... You know, I mean, bottom line perspective. If I was to start a label and, you know, the old model of a label for, again, no listener left behind, labels historically made their money off of selling records, right? And, yes. And now it's, would you say, more selling brands and being invested in the entire life of an artist? The short answer is yes. I mean, what's happening on the recorded side, which is still our core business, I mean, that's what we do is make recorded music. Yeah, we're at this weird moment where we almost have three audiences. Mm -hmm. We have, and I don't, I don't want to say they're roughly in thirds. Obviously, the streaming audience is growing quickly, but let's just say for the sake of argument today, it's a third CD buyers, a third digital track buyers, and a third streamers. And as you would guess, the older audience tends to still like CDs. That's what they grew up with. The, you know, you've got a track buying audience in the middle, and the young audience is primarily streaming tracks. So, so that's one challenge. And then the other thing you brought up is, yes, I think we are now, we've, for example, we've had a publishing company for a long time, and that's something other than recorded music. It's a different kind of rights management that we can partner with an artist on. Well, now we're doing, we've dipped our toe in the water with a few tours. We've dipped our toe in the water with merchandise. And I would say we're still on the early side of all that. We're... Is it profitable for us to get involved? Where do we really add value? Where we actually help an artist and not right. just like take a paycheck? So we're sure. we're still in the wild west right now. I, I think it's another three to five years before I could sit here and go, all right, here's what our model is. We're experimenting. Yeah, I think what we know for sure is we can't be what we've been. Like you know, a, a strictly recorded music company, I don't think will survive. Well, that's I mean that's a pretty big statement. I, I think a lot of the people listening, whether it's a college student who's graduating from mtsu and wanting to become an anr guy like you or somebody who's uh, writing songs in nebraska and wondering how to start their career i think that's pretty comforting actually if, if i was in their shoes that would be comforting for me to hear that brad o'donnell who is high up at a pretty big major label is saying hey we're just experimenting we don't necessarily have all the answers uh, man I, I totally agree and i i think it's easy to be a pessimist right now in the music business. You know, it's funny. I remember uh, shortly before we moved to Nashville, um, I went to a concert and there was a favorite artist of mine playing. And there was a bass player whose name I'd seen on, on a bunch of records and who I really admired. My wife was like elbowing me, like, go talk to him. Go say hi. You should tell him we're thinking about moving to Nashville. And I was totally embarrassed. I went up, talked to him. He's very kind. But the advice he gave me was, don't move to Nashville. This is the late <laughs> 90s. He goes, it's, it's super competitive to be a bass player. It's so hard right now. You know, you're going to have a really hard time making a living. And it, it was incredibly discouraging. Um, and I'm sure he had his reasons for telling me that. But obviously, that just hasn't turned out to be true. And so I never give anybody that advice. I think it requires deep dedication, incredible hard work, a ton of discipline, Obviously, like we've talked about, it, a, a huge willingness to learn, but I think it's a really exciting time to get into the music business. Yeah. I, when I got in, you know, late 90s, 2000, I found it more political, you know? Like, it was very, um, things were driven by dollars a lot. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you know, you want to break an artist in that area. Well, you had to buy a huge banner at GMA, and that costs tens of thousands of dollars, and you had to buy ads in magazines and that cost thousands of dollars so if you didn't have somebody who had power and influence and a big checkbook it was very difficult to break an artist we all now know a ton of artists 
who have a small, dedicated, passionate team. Uh, they made amazing music. They put it up on the internet, and things are happening now. So there's more. It's more challenging, but there's more freedom I think than there's ever been. Wow. For one of those artists and kind of the hypothetical that uh, Seth was saying a minute ago, that songwriter in in Nebraska that's thinking of moving themselves uh, to Nashville or just put up their stuff on YouTube or, you know, put their their music up on uh, SoundCloud or whatever that may be. Uh, For you as an A&R guy, what are you looking for these days? What are some of the prerequisites that you check those boxes and say, this is somebody that I could work with? I mean, there's a, that could be a really long list, but if I was going to sum it up in two things, mm-hmm. well, two things would be really hard. Maybe it's longer <laughs> than two. But the two, first two things that came to mind were you still have to love the music. It's still the music, but that's, I know that sounds weird. and Maybe that's me or our company, but we're very music first. Sure. I mean, I've sat in meetings where people are like, I don't need to hear the song. How many views does it have? How many streams does it have? And it's just like, I can't relate to that. That's right. not how I grew up. It's not who I am. The first thing is you have to hear a song and a performance and go, I love that. Hmm. I love it. I think other people will love it too. The second thing that is new, it used to just, that was your starting point. Then you'd bring them in for a showcase, whatever. Now I think there's another element, which is, you know, I know this drives artists crazy, but it's really what labels call story. What's the story? Sure. And the story can be anything. It's, it's basically some indication that there's a fan base for this music already. So it could be a ton of streams. It could be a ton of video views. It could be a massive tour. It could be you know, something that says, hey, not only is this music good, but there's already bubbling under a real interest in it and excitement for it because the label's obviously going to make a huge time and money investment. Yeah. And the days of like just our A&R guy really likes it, we're going to put it out and cross our fingers. Like those are over. Like an A&R person has to come in now and say, not only do I love this music, but let me demonstrate to you through their social numbers or whatever right. that this is an artist that's working really hard and already has a fan base building. Back in the day, in the early 2000s when you were starting out, could it be that easy that you just really dug their sound and that's all that it took? Yeah, I mean, it, I wasn't the only one that had to like it. You know, you had to get your boss's buy-in and others, but yeah, it really was mm. like, I like this music, I bring it in and play it for the guys that control the checkbook. If they like it too and like the artist, obviously we never, it's another thing I really love about our label is this was the way it was before I got there. Um, they don't sign anything they don't showcase. So there was a sense too of, not only do I got to love the music, they got to be decent live, hopefully great. And they've got to be nice people, you know, people that you just, you like and you want to be around. So there's a little more than just the music, but there was no real way to measure audience engagement. It wasn't that we didn't care. It's just, we didn't have the tools that we have now. Yeah. And so showcasing is still a big part of when you've dated an artist for long enough and you're like, hey, I think we need to bring them to town. Uh, no listener left behind what does a showcase look like yeah you know that's funny because that's one thing that as much as things have changed like the way the dating process has changed is it used to be you would put an A&R person on a plane they'd go check it out they'd come back and go yep they checked the boxes this is a nice person they seem ambitious their live show was good I think we ought to bring them in and play for the label now over the phone and really through YouTube views you can kind of get enough of a sense that this is something we could showcase. So a lot of times just you build a relationship, you know, online and over the phone and then you bring them in. But the actual showcase part, ironically, that's still pretty similar. It's usually going to a club uh, late in the day, renting it out. Um, so you put them in an ideal environment and they're going to play 20 to 30 minutes of music for you and your staff. So mm-hmm. for us, that tends to be, it's not everybody at the company, but say 20 people. 
and I know other companies do it differently. It might just be the A and R person and the the label head or whatever or small group. We feel like if everybody's going to have to work on this, then everybody's got to buy in. Yeah. And what's cool about that, I think, for an A and R person, it takes the pressure off of. Boy, I really hope Brad is right about this artist <laughs> and that it works. Like, look. You guys all saw this. We all looked at it together. We all really believed in this artist. We all really believed in this song. So there's no like, hey, a r forced this down our throats. We have to work it now. We're all in this together. I remember some of my first years coming to Nashville and when I used to do the artist thing, the showcase was probably the most terrifying thing in the entire world <sighs> for, for any artist. Oh, uh, yeah. Like you said, it's 20, 30 people in the back of a dimly lit room in <laughs> Three in the afternoon, downtown Nashville somewhere. All not reacting, all staring at you no with reaction. their arms crossed. <laughs> exactly. So how do you get a feel for how they connect with an audience in, in that setting? I mean, what, what makes an artist win? That's a great question. It's a great question. It's a, you know, and I, there are times that you or the manager says, this artist is not experienced enough. They're going to freak out when put in that setting. So... I think it's better that we book a club show in Nashville. We booked a show in Chattanooga. Would you and some of the staff drive down and see him? Um, and it's just, it's a feel thing. I mean, you have to kind of gauge, like, is this artist seasoned enough? And obviously, we have this conversation. I, I tell them exactly what you just said. Like, look, this is going to be the most unnatural performance you've ever done in your life. <laughs> and you don't ask them to participate. I sing this, you sing that, because they're not going to do it. You know, they're just, but what you try and tell them is, is like, and, and this is the truth, by the way. It's not something I say to make them feel good. It's like, these are music fans. They've already, I've already been in all their offices. I've played them some of your music, and they really like it. And mm -hmm. they want to see what you do. So when they're standing there with their arms crossed, they're not, not into it. It's not they don't care. They're thinking about their job. Yeah. They're evaluating, is this an artist I could get really excited about? And whatever my particular role is at the company, is this an artist that I could get there? And, and the other thing I hope that helps too is, we try and build a relationship before then. So it's not like they've met everybody in that room before they get on stage. So they're not playing to strangers that they've never yeah. met. They're coming in going, I've met these people. I know who they are. I know that they like me or I wouldn't be here. So yeah, even with all of, we do the best we can. It's still, it still is challenging. Are there any artists that come in and you just have the best feeling in the world and everybody loves them and then the showcase just bombs? Yes. Yeah, I can, <laughs> man, I've gotten, you know what's funny is that usually the way I'll start the day is I'll introduce them to my boss. For whatever reason, what comes to mind for me, there are a few of those, there's more, especially earlier in my career, where I'm, I'm sitting in that room and they're sitting on the couch and he throws them a softball. Like, well, tell me, tell me you know, what you think the next two or three years look like for you. And then they say, you know, I really see myself getting a job at a school and settling down and having a couple kids. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh my gosh, this whole day is pointless. Oh no. How did I not pull that out of them off the phone before they came in? You know, my boss is looking at me like, why did you bring this artist? And they don't want to, they don't, they're not really want to do this. So over time, I think you get better at um, asking those questions. But yes, I've had that experience where I thought I did my due diligence and then either the show wasn't great or... The meetings didn't go well. Something got revealed that this just wasn't the right thing for them. I was going to ask, but you kind of answered it. What's a bad day on the job look like? <laughs> <laughs> you know, man, I, it's, what's funny is I still, I mentioned a minute ago, kind of that tension between the business and the creative. Right. Um, that's still, you know what? I've been doing this 16 years. That's still hard for me. It's still hard. It's There's still those days where 
I remember early, I, I would come home and tell my wife, like, I feel like my arms are tired. Like, literally, I feel like I'm being pulled on the one end mm. towards, you know, a business that's very quarter driven. We got to deliver quarterly results. We need songs to run up the radio chart. I'm not saying all the people are like that at, by any stretch, but, you know, it's that can be part of the music business. And then on the other end, an artist that's just like, I just want to make a record that I'm proud of and trying to find that, not compromise, because I don't think it's half of each. Actually, it's trying to do both at the same time. And I mean, that is the most rewarding thing in the world when you make that record that the artist is like, I could not be more proud of this. Like, I cannot wait to go promote this for the next couple of years. And the label is saying, we love this record. We think it's got enormous potential. We're going to put our full weight and resources behind it. Like, and that's, those are the good days. And then the bad ones are just when you feel like you're letting somebody down. Yeah, I hear you. You really have to live in both of those worlds. I would imagine the one job in the label and dealing with the artist that has to have feet in both pools uh, to be successful because there really is no bad guy when you look at it. The label's trying to do what they do because that's their job and the artist is trying to do their job because they're the artist and that's where they're at. And it's finding that happy medium. And again, I, I know that you said that compromise may have not been the word, but there is so much that has to be juggled and balanced to make both successful in the end. I think that's right. You know, and I think you, you know, at the label, what we're trying to do is find artists that what you try and do, and I think what you get better at over time is you try and find artists where that's naturally aligned. Mm -hmm. Like, in other words, I've worked there long enough. I know what's important to the label now. And I'm trying to find artists that align with those same objectives. Because then I know we're not going to be fighting a year or two later. And somebody's going to be let down and disappointed. And, and I would give the same advice to an artist. Like, man, really get to know that record company and make sure you have the same objectives going into it. Yeah. And don't just, because they, they wrote you a check with the number of zeros at the end of it that you want, sign up. Because you're going to be disappointed and frustrated in a short amount of time both sides have to really do their homework and feel like they're headed to the same place and they want the same things yeah i've read that you're on the board of a couple organizations can you talk about three strands and porter's call and what they do no oh, thanks for asking i'm really proud to be involved with both you know three strands is an organization that fights sex trafficking around the world I uh, I remember Amy Grant was in the label years ago. She said a lot of things that have really resonated with me. She said this one. She said, pay attention to the things in life that make you cry and that make you angry. And I, I got to be honest. I, like, I, I was like, that's really deep, but I don't think I know what that means. Mm. And then a friend invited me to a fundraiser for this organization called Three Strands that I'd never heard of. And I heard stories of little girls, you know, mostly in Cambodia where they've started their work, but they're working around the world now primarily in Cambodia, you know, little four or five and six-year-old girls that are uh, have been sex trafficked, and it's awful. And so I felt like I had to go see it, and I went and saw it, and it changed my life. And uh, it's the thing. I, I don't know that I can really tell you why. I mean, I have two daughters. That's probably part of it. I'm sure but, that's a big part of it. Yeah, you just you go and you see it, and then you say, whatever you need. Like, literally, however I can help, I want to help. Yeah. So that's just started as a relationship of helping them and promoting them. And eventually they asked me to join the board last year and I love it. That's what Three Strands does. And wow. Porter's Call is, uh, there's a guy in town named Al Andrews who uh, moved in town, I think about 15, 16 years ago. And he was a counselor and our company paid for a day of his counseling with the condition that he give it all to artists. That day filled up immediately. Wow. And then two days filled up, then three. And then the whole industry came together and said, 
this is too important. Like if we don't have healthy artists, um, we don't have a music business. You know, healthy artists make, they have healthy careers. They make good records and they make them for a long time. Aside from the fact that it's the right thing to do, by the way. It's just, it's in our own interest, sure. you know, to do it. And so I've just, I've seen it firsthand. I've seen Al save lives, save marriages, you know, save careers. Um, so he's great. And I think what he provides to artists is just a safe place, to be honest. You know, most of us, your record producer, your songwriter, your A&R guy, your manager, let's be honest. I mean, we love the artists we work with, but we have a business interest. Yeah. And so if something's really wrong, there's a major temptation for them to not tell us. And so Al and the counselors that he works with provide a place where they can go and they can talk about anything. And he helps them and it's completely confidential and he does amazing work. So I'm uh, super honored to be a part of both. Yeah, what a, what a vision early on for your label group to invest in a day where you're not necessarily seeing a return on, yeah. on paper. It's, or probably even today, you know. But you're just sewing into the lives of artists because you're signing human beings, and human beings are messy. I just think that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty. That's a, that's an incredible example. I think in the music industry. It's I don't beautiful. know if it, if it yeah. happens in other genres. I'm not sure at all. Thanks for saying that. I mean, what, and what's great about Al is I think it started because of us as primarily a Christian music thing, and now he sees pop bands, rock bands, country stars. Which is good because they can write bigger checks to donate to him than most of our <laughs> artists and people can. But it's it's he does he and his team do unbelievable work. I know firsthand. I've been to Al back when I was doing the artist thing, and he he has a pretty powerful calling on his life to be doing what he's doing. Yeah, and really does create a safe place and create I think longevity in careers. Which brings me to my kind of last question as we're as we're wrapping up and I know you got to get on with your day, but are there things that you can tell early on where you're like, this artist is going to be around for a long time. And what is a, what are some of the hallmarks of longevity in an artist's career? Man, that's a great, that's probably the question I ask myself more than any other. So for us, that would be, you know, Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, Chris Tomlin, David Crowder. I'm trying to think of the artists that have had really long, successful John Foreman, Switchfoot, you know, you're constantly asking yourself, so what's what's the secret? Like, what are they doing right that I can help grow in the young artists I'm working with? Because it's the right thing for us and the right thing for them. And it, it changes a little bit every year. I mean, I, I think there's, you use the phrase, the end of your question, what are the hallmarks? Because I don't think it's a formula. Obviously, if it was, believe me, I would have tried to crack it by now. <laughs> but, you know, I think some of the things that mark them are incredible work ethic. You know, so they're constantly putting in hours and, you know, that, for example, a lot of them write more songs and rewrite more songs than other artists. That, that's a general trend that I've seen among successful artists with long careers is they write a lot. <laughs> they rewrite a lot. They, they work really hard on their records. They revisit them when they're not right. So I'm not saying an artist that's like, here's my 10 songs, you know, here's the recording, I'm done. Can't make it, but I think the odds are stacked against you. And I also think there's a there's a part of it, ironically, that's non-musical. That just has to do with who you are as a human being. Like, do you have the ability to uh, connect and connect with people and move them? Because I think music is an emotional language, and I think that's why most of us consciously or unconsciously go to music because it makes you feel something. It, it enables you to connect with truths that are. I don't know that you can get at any other way. I mean, I heard this guy speak once. 
and it really resonated with me. He said, I think music is a language that God created that can deal with contradiction in a way that linear art forms can't, a painting or a movie or book. And I think the whole room was kind of confused. He said, let me show you what I mean. He walked over to a piano and he played a C chord. And he said, so am I playing a C chord or am I playing the individual notes C, E, and G? And he, of course, the answer is both. And he mm. said, that's what I mean is in, in a sermon or any other kind of art form, you're kind of telling a story and relating something. Music has this ability to kind of communicate more than one truth at once. Oh, and wow. um, I think that's, you know, I know that's a really kind of obscure answer to your question, but I think you're looking for that feeling that an artist's music gives to you when you hear it. Wow. Well, that's. it seems like you've done a pretty good job of identifying those artists and those songs and those creators over your career. So mm-hmm. congratulations on an amazing career, Absolutely. first of all. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's it's mm-hmm. inspiring for me being newer in the music industry to see. So thank you for saying that. Yeah. Thank you for being here. You guys are awesome. Thanks for having me. Hey guys, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another great guest, Paul Duncan. Make sure you stick around. Head over to iTunes, leave us a good rating and review. Produced by the Full Circle Music Show with editing help from Jericho Scroggins. And once again, head over to fullcirclemusic.org for your free copy of the top 10 tips for successful songwriting. Go right to the front page and click there. We'll see you next time.